0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm thrilled that you are going to be able to join us today. We're going to be talking about EMS challenges when it comes to dementia. So I think this is going to be a real fascinating topic. It's been a hot button for years and years now. And so we are really, really lucky to have Pete Briwerton with us. And uh, before I introduce him, I'm just going to give a couple of shout outs. One is to our own website, alzheimerspeaks.com. Please go visit. We have all kinds of free resources that we have curated over the years uh, since we've been in this space. So won't cost you a nickel, wide variety of stuff. Uh, You will also find information on Dementia Map, which is our global resource directory with over 150 categories you can search, a calendar of events the Glossary of Terms, the blog with some great articles. And then of course, our book tab is there as well. If you want to get a great children's book that opens up the conversation about how we care, uh, you can purchase Betty, the Bald Chicken Lessons in How to Care. And of course, we do speaking and branding as well. So with no further ado, let me go ahead and pull Pete into the conversation. Well, Pete, I'm so excited to have you with us today. You are going to be talking about the challenges that EMS has with people with dementia and probably the families too, because sometimes I know we can get in the way trying to be helpful. And this is such a a good topic. It's one that needs to be exposed more. And hopefully we'll be talking about some ways to be able to ease the process there and and changes that could be had. It's safer and a, a easier process, I guess, for everyone. But before we go down that path, I'd love you just to introduce yourself to our audience, if you don't mind.
1: Sure. Lori, it's great to speak with you today, and thank you for the opportunity to speak with your audience. Um, My name is Pete Brierton. I'm a career first responder. I actually started over 40 years ago in law enforcement as a police officer, Uh throughout my career, I actually transitioned more towards the fire service side because emergency medicine has been my passion. So in the last 40 years, I've been somewhat of a job hoarder, And the fact that I've had opportunities to work in all facets of of EMS, from uh, pre-hospital to helicopter EMS. I've worked in emergency departments, cardiac cath labs. Um, In the last six years since my retirement as a career firefighter, My passion has become teaching. I teach for three different agencies. I teach for two large healthcare systems in the Milwaukee area and a technical college. Uh, This allows me to extend my career and pass on the experiences on the insight that I've had in my experience to people that are just coming into the EMS world, hopefully making, um, their acceptance of it and their experience is a little bit easier than what I've had it from in the past. Certainly education and dialogue is a way to do that.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you. Now, I always like to start out asking um, all of my guests if they've been personally touched in their own family or circle of friends by dementia.
1: Yes. And oddly enough, uh, my best friend was, um, I should say, ran a lawnmower repair service in addition to... um, the, the shop itself, his grandparents lived in a adjacent adjacent structure. And strangely, both of his parents ended up being diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Because my friend was at the shop every day, he was primarily there, or he was their primary caregivers. So he saw the nuances. He saw how they started changing in their behavior, in their mentation. And uh, unfortunately, he was put into the front lines for making decisions for healthcare for them, and it, it really impacted his life. It impacted his uh, approach to dealing with Alzheimer's patients, and it gave him a unique insight. And from those experiences, I've, I've learned from him, and I've seen the progression, uh, myself having known his grandparents for oh, since we've been in high school quite a while ago.
0: Wonderful. Well, it's it is amazing how those experiences can just be life changing on so many levels. That kind of ripple effect that you just don't even know about. Um, let's let's like hit this hard and let's talk about some of the challenges that EMS providers face when dealing with somebody with Alzheimer's or Lewy body, or there's there's lots of different um, types of dementia that are out there.
1: There are uh, frequently. Um, EMS is the first exposure or the first access to healthcare for many of these patients. Just like any other medical condition, EMS has patients that they see quite frequently. One of the issues that we run into is if we have a new patient, we're trained to do specific assessments in a very thorough, consistent manner. By doing that, uh, we cover all of our bases to ensure that we haven't forgotten any part of a, a history that would end up being a significant part that us in on whatever issues this patient may be suffering. That is kind of muddied with Alzheimer's and dementia patients because it proved to be more of a challenge. Uh, Varying stages of dementia or or Alzheimer's can impact the efficacy or how accurate our our assessments are. Um, It's difficult at times to to be certain that the information that the patient is providing is valid. Obviously, what we look to is to have caregivers or healthcare providers or family members there to assist us with that. One of the challenges becomes that we end up speaking around the patient, the caregivers at times, and that can be a a cause of agitation um, or frustration for the patient themselves. One of the difficult things we need to do is assess in a very short time frame, identify any life threatening issues and to start treating that very quickly. So we try to gather as much information with as many valid sources uh, as are on location for us. again, that sometimes is problematic because we have the, the dialogue between a patient and between the patient 's caregivers, not having any knowledge of that patient 's background. Sometimes hard for us to tell what it, what is fact and, and what is being confabulated.
0: Now, one of the things you know in our dementia friendly community here in Roseville, we had a um, a panel discussion with our our police and fire, and it was really interesting because the police chief said, "Well, what she recommended, and I don't know if you've heard of this or done this or if this would be helpful for you guys, but she said if you have someone." living with dementia in your house, call non-emergency 911 and let them know the details. So at least when we get there, we know this person has dementia. And that makes it a little bit easier for us to kind of figure out what direction or is this information they're giving us valid? Do we need a backup? And then also, um, they said, give us a contact, emergency contact information so we can get a hold of somebody as well. Have you heard of that or utilized that or?
1: Unfortunately not. I think that's very dependent on the, the size of community you're dealing with. Unfortunately, in the metro area time is is of the essence. Dispatchers are being prompted to push these calls out. EMS providers are, are being pushed to make sure that we get out of the, the station, and arrive to the patient in very timely manners. So unfortunately, a lot of that information that would be nice to have isn't translated. And in the past, when we have gotten that information, either it hasn't been translated or it's been translated inaccurately. The biggest thing for EMS providers is once we're at the home of, of an Alzheimer's dementia patient, that's something we'll put in our back pocket and we'll use that information in interaction with that patient moving forward. Our best sources of information is is right on scene as to what is currently going on at the, at the specific time. Although it is great to have that background, um, if the situation would allow us. It's truly not a life threatening emergency. We appreciate having all of that information so that we can do a more uh, more thorough job for your
0: patient. Okay, would it be helpful for like having the the file of life or vial of life? information for you guys? Or is it just it's too fast paced in terms of what you're dealing with to really look for that stuff on the fridge or in the freezer?
1: No, no. Commonly, that's one of the best ways that families of Alzheimer's patients can help us out. Rationale being is we love to have caregivers or have family members that uh, will be there all the time. But in, in reality, that may not happen. So having access to written document, medications, diagnoses, in a, a very accessible format helps EMS out immensely. Um, again, situations are, are very subjective for the people that are reporting them. So having that ability to look into a patient's um, diagnosis and history, and specifically what medications they take on a daily basis, are the greatest help for us.
0: Okay. And what are your typical calls like? I mean, I know they must vary widely and stuff. Um, that you are called out for?
1: Aside from Alzheimer's or dementia patient, one of the very common calls EMS deals with uh, in regards to the elderly is altered mentation. Altered mentation, somebody is not quite themselves and and it can be very subtle in presentation and is that they may not be paying attention or seemingly ignore uh, the other person in the conversation or it might be drastic where they're, unresponsive or unconscious. One of the issues that we run into is uh, trying to establish what that person's normal level of consciousness, is and what their level of responsiveness is. We have a series of tests that we do routinely on every patient. Along with that, one of the concerns with that altermentation may be related to Alzheimer's or dementia, or maybe may be physiologically driven. Someone may have low blood sugar, um, possibly being diabetic or even not being diabetic. They could have infection. One of the big things we look for in the elderly is a prevalence of UTIs or urinary tract infections. One of the main things that EMS will glom onto is the fact of altered mentation. And it has to do with release of toxins within the system. Uh, so that's, there's things that EMS will do on scene to help remove any potential causes for that altered mentation. But again, that's one of the, the biggest calls we receive. Secondary to that, uh, probably behavioral issues. Um, EMS will is kind of the band-aid go-to for transporting patients, especially if there's not uh, cars or if there are caregivers that feel uh, comfortable and safe doing that. So EMS very fr- frequently will look acc- and counter these patients when they're in crisis or when they're in a psychosis so that kind of tests the, the patients and the skills of the of the practitioners so having more education as the way EMS can relate to to Alzheimer's patients is is a win for both sides it allows us to communicate and treat the patient more effectively and allows a, that care providers or family members to have an expectation as to what our needs are and where we put our
0: do you get many calls for falls? I hear I hear families all the time going, I can't get him up off the floor or I can't get her up and I, I have to call for help.
1: Across the board for elderly population and defining elderly as hopefully anyone older than myself, but sadly that's not true. <laughs> so elderly calls of 65 or older, the main call we do receive are related to falls. Frequently those falls are due to an imbalance, tripping on a rug. Uh, They may have more insidious causes like low blood sugar or someone may be experiencing a cardiac or neurologic event. But EMS, when we respond to those types of calls, don't do just the the patient pickup. Uh, We used to call them tip-ups, bring the patient back up. We'd have the patient sign off um, and then go on our way. Frequently, the people that do this are, are frequent flyers that they're prone to having falls. DMS knows that we know how the patient presents. That doesn't minimize our assessments of these folks. Every time we go out and do um, a patient fall response, we always make sure that we do a very thorough vital sign check, uh, specifically blood sugar, and try to determine if there's any issues or any new problems within the, the house itself, such as um, burners being left on, anything that might be like loose handrails or anything that would cause potential for additional falls.
0: Okay. Well, that that is helpful. I think people don't realize how much you guys get called for things like that. And I hear it from families all the time. Um, many of them say, I, I don't want to call. I I feel embarrassed to call. You know, I should be able to handle this, but I but I can't, and yet I don't want to move them, and so there's a lot of guilt and anxiousness uh, sure. that comes with those. Do you, when you go out and the the care partner is there, um, are there times where their anxiety can kind of get in the way of you being able to do your job as well?
1: At times, and it's completely understandable. I. I can appreciate to some small degree the difficulty it is to live with someone with long-term health illness, especially when their cognition changes day-to-day they may become agitated or angry for seemingly no reason at all. Um, And you can tell it wears on the caregivers. When EMS goes out to calls like this, we always keep in the back of our mind that we're dealing with two patients typically where life-saving interventions are on the patient that we're doing the assessment on, but also we have to treat the caregivers a patient and spend more time listening to them, trying to allow them to, to speak whatever their concerns are at that given time. I believe a lot of caregivers may have limitations as to who they speak with or uh, when they go to medical um, appointments, everything is very much rushed. So as EMS providers, we always try to take time to make that connection never possible again all of our assessments and all of our discussion is completely based on what we find from a, a physical basis
0: Okay, great. Thank you. So what can be done to assist the EMS providers, you know, when, when they're out at the house or I suppose there's all different places you guys get called. I mean, it could be on the side of a freeway or something as well. What can we do as families and, and what can the industry do to support you better? The
1: best things that families can do for EMS, again, is getting back to having that vial of life. Mm -hmm. or having documentation or paperwork. Um, Having that paperwork uh, that's inclusive of all the daily medications, especially with diagnoses, doctor contact numbers, facilities that they are treated by frequently, is the single biggest help for us. Um, Obviously, assessments are are very subjective. They're very interactive with the patient. Um, We rely on determining... Initially, what, uh, what the, how the patient's going to present and where we start our thought process. So, what potentially could be happening? Um, from the, the family's perspective, getting bottles of medication. Uh, very frequently EMS will deal with, um, many patients that are, are polypharmaceuticals, meaning that they'll have several, several bottles of, of medication. Uh, can't tell you the number of times that. We've had shoeboxes full of medications, some that have been discontinued, some that are, are replicas of each other. But having that medication in hand, the doctor that prescribed it and the, the dosing of it, especially with the milligrams of, of the pill or the frequency it's taken, is of paramount importance for us. And it gives us a better insight, again, into organically what's going on with the patient. And not only from the Alzheimer's and dementia perspective, from a health perspective. It's easy to discount Alzheimer's patients and relegating their presentations to strictly being neurologic. Frequently, these are very complex patients. And in addition to having the diagnosis of Alzheimer's or dementia, frequently they will also have cardiovascular issues, hypertension, diabetes. So they present very complex patterns for EMS to, to delve into to do a very decent assessment on. So the more information that can be provided for us on on scene at the house, the better off our care will be and the better um, determination of where that patient needs to go and the care they need to uh, to receive will be done faster. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-494-8310. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states.
0: Do you recommend, I mean, I've seen bracelets that have the USB where you can plug it in. And they can have their, their vital information in there. Um, do you recommend those?
1: That's something that I'm not overly familiar with. Mm-hmm. At the bare minimum, uh, what helps aMS out a great deal, especially if a patient is not in their own home, is the use of a bracelet mm-hmm. with identifications of name, phone number, and what the diagnosis is. The ability to have a USB with all that information would be great. Most times, EMS providers have uh, computer tablets that we do the patient care reports on, we can download some of that information. But the single biggest things we need to know is who this patient is, what their diagnosis is, and a contact phone number. Those three things will allow EMS to to give the the best appropriate care, said, especially when the patient is away from home. I go back to my best friend's grandparents. Um, His grandfather was a fantastic mechanic and actually designed tools for use at factories in Milwaukee, a very gifted man, very intelligent man. As Alzheimer's started to progress, he became more and more forgetful to the extent that my friend had to disable his car because his grandfather wanted to go out and go for a drive. So he had to actually take out part of the distributor, fearing that his grandfather, being mechanical, would figure out whatever he did wrong to it. That culminated in uh, one evening during the winter when his grandfather left his home and was out wandering uh, in the cold And about two o'clock in the morning in a desolated area near a hospital about a mile away from it. And it just happened that a teenage worker coming back from a late shift happened to see this old kind of disheveled looking gentleman on the side of the road and how the goodness of their hearts stopped. And they understood that something was going on with him just based on the way he presented. So in this instance, the local police department was called and they knew his grandfather because of his presence in the business community. But that's a rare exception when patients wander away from home the first people on scene may have no idea who this is, or even if it's a patient at risk. So, having those identifiers on patients is a, a great help to me in this and law enforcement.
0: Yeah, I love even just the little cards that say, you know, I have dementia. But then on the backside, a lot of them now are starting to say, in my care partner's name and phone number, and the care partner carrying one in case they're in a car accident. And something happens to them saying, I'm caring for somebody with dementia. This is their name. Here's an alternative backup, you know, to call. Those little things can make such a huge, huge difference. You know, I want to go back to the the file of life. I know people a lot of times put them on their fridge or they get tubes and they put them in their freezer, but I'm kind of a believer that they should have a copy of that in the car as well, or in their purse or in their wallet. I mean, it doesn't have to take up a ton of space. I mean, some of them do, if you're putting do not resuscitate and those types of things with them. But just to have some basic information, I think the one big caution, though, is so many people are so used to writing out their social security numbers and all their numbers, and you cannot put that stuff down, you know, um, on that information Uh, that would not, in my opinion, be safe to do anyways.
1: No, I agree. Having that limited information, giving the background, especially in a car is a, a significant help for EMS. Fortunately, one of the issues that has been increasing over the last few years because of the aging population is the incident of elderly drivers or silver alerts, um, folks with impaired mentation or cognition actually being able to get into their car. Uh, it, for the fire department I worked for here in the Milwaukee area, we actually had a gentleman that was a silver alert from Indiana. He got in, he drove his uh, car all the way up to one of our stations and ended up being hungry. So he pulled into the station and wanted to see if they would give him a sandwich. So fortunately our, our crew was aware what was going on and uh, they not only provided him a sandwich, they gave him a full meal and he spent the afternoon with them until family members came and retrieved him. So unfortunately, Not all situations with lost or driving individuals that have dementia or Alzheimer's end well. Very frequently, we run into significant accidents. Um, Even in my own neighborhood, I had um, an older neighbor that didn't live here all the time. He was lost on our two streets just looking for his cottage. He hadn't been out here in about a year And he was only maybe 500 feet or so away from his cottage, but he had no clue where it actually was. So for every person that we're aware of, there's tens if not hundreds that still drive on a daily basis with impaired cognition. Again, we're seeing that being reflected in in accident rates, in incidents on highways with vehicles entering um, the wrong way and traveling miles at high speed. Um, Certainly that's not limited to only People with Alzheimer's and dementia, but it is a main factor. Something that we have to be aware of with accidents.
0: Yeah, we we had one uh, person in, in one of my support groups, and her husband hadn't driven in six years, gave up his driver's license. He was totally fine, and then one morning at six in the morning, he grabbed the keys and she and left, and she was asleep, didn't know. And he was gone for like eight hours, I want to say, and he ran out of gas and the nice construction guys filled up his, you know, gave him some gas to get him moving, because they didn't know he had those social skills and stuff. And then apparently he got caught driving the wrong way down the down a, a road. And the police just, you know, talked with them and turned them around and didn't do an assessment of what was really going on. And, you know, it's a fine line on what do you do? You're trying to be, you know, a good person and um, those types of things can happen, uh, but sometimes they're much more than just an accident, you know, and uh, so it, it gets tough, I think, for everyone to figure out what's going on and especially for a lay person, like you said, the people who... Um, picked up your friend's grandpa. You know, I mean, not everybody would do that. And some people might be combative in that situation. Very much
1: so. It was a very dangerous situation he was in. Fortunately, a good Samaritan happened by, and I actually recognized that he was in distress and that there were some underlying health issues that were playing into it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: As far as People driving, it, it's interesting. Many people don't want to give up their driver's license. It's, it's their last means of independence, especially as we age, the ability to go out on your own or to travel becomes impaired or, or certainly can become impaired by underlying health issues. So people view driving as, as their means of independence. So that's a major thing for an Alzheimer's patient to give up their car, to, to have the wherewithal, to acknowledge that. It's something that EMS and law enforcement deal with on all too frequent basis. Like I said, there are a lot of good Samaritans because of the incidents. This is happening. EMS and law enforcement are are starting to delve into this a little bit more. Uh, Again, anytime we go out or EMS goes out to evaluate someone from an incident like this, we do a full medical assessment. Typically during that we'll have some insight um, if we're not comfortable with the patient's mentation, having that ability to call a caregiver or family member to direct our care is, is very helpful for us.
0: Oh, I, I can only imagine on that. Well, if you are just tuning in, we are talking with Pete Brierton, who is a career first responder and who trains um, all over the place and does just a wonderful job. He's been giving us great information on what we can do as families to make their jobs a little easier. So if you are just tuning in right now, you're going to want to rewind to be able to hear some of those those tips Um, And you can always reach out to Pete on Facebook or LinkedIn. This is a a really important issue on on so many levels for safety and care, not only for the the patient, for the person, you know, that you're um, treating, but also for the workers and the family members as well, because things can be masked and get complicated really quick. Now, you know, we talked about what family could kind of do to to help, and you've given us a lot of tips there. What other types of resources would you like uh, seeing put into place, if that's coming from the community, um, if that is is coming from the industry itself? Can you expand on that?
1: Education. Education is the single biggest thing that EMS needs. Um, I've been reading, uh, doing research in Alzheimer's. Or currently, there's around 6 million Americans that are, are diagnosed with Alzheimer's they have dementia. That number is uh, projected to grow to 13 million by 2050. You know, we can go back to, you know, it's baby boomers. Baby boomers are, are living uh, longer lives. Um, EMS providers are actually dropping. So EMS, EMS itself is a very dynamic job, and it's certainly people-centric. It's people-focused. It's, it's all about interpersonal skills and having the assessment tools to pick up on those, those nuances when somebody might be going into a crisis. So EMS benefits from consistent education. We're mandated by state laws to have continually refreshers. Here in Wisconsin, a basic EMT has to go through 60 hours of education now that Wisconsin has gone to a triennial uh, renewal period. Previously, Wisconsin had um, every 2 year renewal periods that mandated EMTs have 48 hours of continuing education, of course, with things like CPR and defibrillation and mandatory medical topics. Uh, now with the, the emphasis on aging baby boomers with the uh, Uh, significant increase that ems deals with in alzheimer's patients and aging patients in general education is going to be key for having better interaction education not only from sources like hospitals and and colleges the instances where i teach but in also reaching out from community groups like your community um, people family members of alzheimer's there are things that you can provide help teach EMS, it's going to work, that education, uh, formal education, won't. Some of the tips that we'll use when we're uh, assessing someone is we'll slow down. Rather than using open-ended questions, which we typically do to to get the patient's uh, input as to what's actually going on, we don't use open-ended questions. We keep our questions very simple and very directed towards the patient. Rather than having a number of people ask questions, which some it can sometimes happen based on the nature of the emergency scene we're dealing with, we try to have one person do the assessment, one person to interact with the patient. And again, to slow down that assessment and to try to to use familiar language and not talk around them. A uh, common thing that we've already discussed is that family members and caregivers will certainly jump in trying to help us out and, and give additional information, which is great. We, we truly appreciate that. But we need to get the input from the patient themselves. So by slowing down our assessments, by interacting on a more eye-to-eye or, or one-to-one level, we have a tendency of getting better education. But because of the different stages of Alzheimer's, it's difficult to be masters in dealing with all these patients, uh, given all the various forms of dementia and Alzheimer's. So above and beyond education that's mandated or formal education, EMS has a great appreciation for families coming to the fire station or coming to uh, one of the department trainings and just explaining this is their father, this is their grandmother. These are the things that work for dealing with this patient. And we can take that vicariously, uh, put it towards other patients that we deal with that also have Alzheimer's.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because you know, there's a saying when you've met one person with dementia, you've met one, but that goes for the care partner that goes for the environment, things can change in a heartbeat. So it really is kind of a trial and error in getting a toolkit. Of different variables, I love that you said that you're slowing down and trying to have one person kind of build that relationship and ask the questions and and even the the eye contact and not having the open ended questions I mean those are really, really key one of the things and, and again i don 't know if you 've heard of this, but i haven't seen it duplicated here in the u s but I would love to over in the u k Norms McNamara who's been living with dementia um, the Louis body type for, gosh, close to 15 years, they have an MP3 player program. And anybody who, you know, gets pulled off in an ambulance, um, or, you know, they're doing some kind of assessment, when there's a little downtime, they give them some music, just to kind of calm them down and keep them distracted from the fr- the flashing lights and all the other things that can be going on. Because sometimes it's not just them, that's the issue, it might be a it might be a bigger event that you are at with more stimulation um, from a car accident to, to all different kinds of things. And what they're doing is they are um, they're getting donations to purchase those. And then they are given, you know, to the um, EMS workers uh, to be able to utilize. And they just have some common playlists. They're starting to utilize those for, Um, autistic kids and different things like that too. So they're having different layers of different types of playlists um, put on, but it would be neat to be able to see. I I mean, I think of the kids, I mean, my, my daughter's in her thirties now, but um, so many of the teenagers, I mean, they just kind of rotate their stuff, you know, and it's like it gets tossed in a drawer and it's like, it would be so cool if they had, a way to recycle that stuff in the schools, and then to get the kids involved in programming something purposeful um, would just be, uh, to me, I think, unbelievable. But the results they're having over there are quite significant in terms of de-escalating and keeping things calm, which I thought was really interesting.
1: You bring up a very good point about the power of music in in someone with Alzheimer's. I go back to, unfortunately, we had lost Tony Bennett, just this past weekend, I was watching uh, a presentation along with him and Lady Gaga celebrating his 95th birthday last year. And prior to the event, um, Lady Gaga had mentioned that it seemed like Tony wasn't 100% sure who she was, uh, wouldn't really call him by name, and seemed somewhat indifferent or not fully engaged with with their practice, as soon as a piano started playing, she described it as somebody switching or, or flipping a switch. He became completely engaged. He knew all the words to all of his old songs. So that's something the that EMS does use. When we deal with agitated patients, end up defaulting back to songs that would be familiar with patients. and Because uh, one of the things we can do by using music is kind of a distractor. And what we've found is that agitated patients are very linear thinkers. So if we can distract them with music, we can gener- generally deescalate the situation. And as, as basic as it seems, we'll often go back to singing happy birthday. Singing happy birthday to someone who's agitated, it pulls them out of whatever the, the position their mind is in at that time and makes them become engaged with you. So it's one of the distractors that we can use to, again, help cool off a situation that might potentially become physical.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great idea. Um, I, I lo- like I said, I love the idea of education. I don't think there's enough of that out there. And I think so much that isn't talked about is kind of that multisensory engagement with people, too, and you know we're in a rush in terms of of how we touch or talk or and all of those things matter if they if they see us coming or we're approaching from the backside our tone of voice um, many different things. In fact, I have a, I have a brochure, I'd be more than just a little trifold, I'd be more than glad to give you if that would be helpful in your, in your Definitely. trainings that has a bunch of, of key points in that. In all of this, you know, we've kind of touched on why EMS is is concerned about this situation. But let's explore that a little bit further. What are some of the ramifications of dealing with somebody and not having the proper tools that you need?
1: The biggest issues are being unaware of the underlying issues and not taking into account what potentially could be cognitively impaired would actually be something physical. So not having that, that background information is, is a significant challenge. Again, it's easy to deal with an Alzheimer's patient and blame whatever the, their issues or complaints are on Alzheimer's as opposed to having a, a physiologic basis. and That's something that is a challenge to all healthcare providers across the board, but especially when dealing with Alzheimer's patients. Again, there's a tendency of living in the past or answering questions that may have been pertinent to health issues years ago, which may or may not still be a, a significant issue. But some of the biggest challenges we deal in is that EMS is frequently, again, the first cog in the wheel for healthcare access to most patients. Frequently, a lot of times the calls that we have to respond to Alzheimer's patients really are more behavioral health issues as opposed to true medical issues. Uh, And that goes to a a larger problem with EMS in the country right now. EMS all across the nation is in a, a crisis state. People don't understand uh, the turnover of EMS providers, the low pay, and the significance of not being able to access EMS services when needed. One of the issues that EMS runs into is they're called in more or less to transport individuals to doctor appointments or, you know, because it's a matter of convenience for the caregiver. Certainly, that's not true in all instances, but it certainly is based on some of the care facilities I've gone to in the last several years that it's were a means to get this patient out of their facility to be evaluated. The reality is that the system can't bear that. There's fewer ambulances now than there were 20 years ago. We're not seeing EMS providers, volunteers, full-time career people choose EMS as a career, like we were 10 to 15 years ago, service so industries such as EMS and healthcare in general have taken a significant toll since COVID. As a federal first responder, I responded nine times throughout the country and actually throughout the world uh, for COVID response, and I saw firsthand the burnout rates, the PTSD, and I've experienced it myself. I'm the unusual. Animal in EMS. The typical EMS career spans anywhere. We used to say about six and a half to seven years. Um, that was information from 2018. Post COVID, I believe that ad- adequate or average EMS career span is is less than five years. A lot of things go into that. Uh, EMS is seen as a stepping stone to get into other parts of healthcare. Um, there's low pay. You know, there's significant amounts of. of call volumes. EMS crews, especially private EMS agencies, are are just being run nonstop currently. One of the issues we deal with in uh, the city of Milwaukee is that Milwaukee Fire doesn't do basic life support transport. It's the city BLS response is divided amongst private ambulance companies. As long as this has been going on, there's been performance standards. of These ambulance companies have to to meet in order to maintain that contract and the the single biggest one is having a squad on the scene so you're not tying up the fire companies they can go back to other calls or that you're not tying up an advanced life support or a paramedic unit now that the situation for staffing has gotten uh, so bad they're having quadruple turnarounds meaning that they'll go through the, the list of all the private ambulance providers uh, one after another can't meet that performance perspective, or may not have a, a, a squad available for over an hour. Unfortunately, when that situation happens, it necessitates the uh, fire resource, fire truck, a ladder truck, stay on scene with the patient until either a private ambulance or a paramedic unit is available to do that transport. And frequently that can be up to or beyond an hour. Um, also, When you use a paramedic unit to transport a patient that really with behavioral issues, you're taking a significant resource away from the community. Paramedic units are designed to treat patients with life-threatening issues. And certainly uh, an Alzheimer's patient may have any number of life-threatening issues. In this particular instance, where ambulances are being utilized uh, more as a, a transport service, it, it depletes the system again because of reduced funding, because we're not getting the amount of, of applicants or people willing to, to get into the EMS system. EMS in the United States is a crisis. And unfortunately, it's only going to get worse based on all of our aging. I know all of, all of us boomers are, are currently hitting that elderly stage and because we've been more aware of our lifestyle choices and healthcare. We're all living longer. So again, that's going to add additional stress in the
0: system. Yeah, it's kind of spooky. Uh, our, you know, it's it's not just healthcare, but healthcare is such a significant factor for all of us, and I think we take it for granted until we need it, and then people get agitated if there can't be a response. And it's like, well, you can only do so much at the other end, um, you know. And our our you know politicians and, and government have to really look closely at. This, you know, kind of reorganization of how are we going to meet the needs and where are, you know, how do we do that in the best economical fashion so that we're not pulling emergency staff away from something, like you said, that's more transportive um, in behavioral health. And, and hopefully with some of the changes with police departments and the mental health and social workers, maybe some of that will come into play Somewhere along the line, but again, that all needs to get set up and then communicated to the public in terms of if those things are changing and how they're changing uh, as well, which never seems to go quickly no opinion. no it never does with any of that, it seems like there's a lot of grovelling and and then the public is just sitting there going, "What do we do?" so I think you know this conversation with you is so helpful because I think. At a grassroots level, we all need to know what can we do to support you to make your jobs easier, to make things go smoother, instead of being like an a, a ostrich with our head in the sand going, this isn't going to hit me. Yeah, it is. It's going to hit you or it's going to hit somebody you know, and we need to have this conversation. And it might be a tough one and it might be an inconvenient one, but when someone you love, you know, life is on the line. You want things to be go as smooth as possible and for people to have as much information. So, asking you to fill out a a file of life or a vial of life, whichever one, isn't a lot to ask. And for you to keep that updated with your medications and have that accessible and who are emergency contacts and who are the doctors, um, that stuff is, you know, to me, that's smart living. Um, mm-hmm. When I travel, I always carry something like that with me because you know I don't know what's going to happen. You know, <laughs> you sure, know or sure. if I'm going to be able to push a button on on my phone because Lord knows I don't remember any phone numbers anymore. You no, know, <laughs> no. With things like that, so um, yeah, it's just it's really critical for us to to bring these things up to our city councils and to our senators and representatives and say you know this is an issue that needs to be addressed like you said the numbers of people affected and in need are going up and the numbers of those that can help support and are working for EMS are going down you know that's that's just a collision you know in disaster um sooner or later and nobody wants to be part of that so um Again, I, I really appreciate you bringing this up. How do you think EMS is evolving overall as a profession? Do you see, do you see being able to pull more people into the profession? Because, boy, if that doesn't happen, we're really all in trouble.
1: You know, I think it is a natural evolution where a lot of medicine is branched out from uh, doctors and nurses and gone into a uh, paraprofessional with nurse practitioners, advanced practice providers. Um, A lot of of movements, uh, especially Minnesota being one of the earlier adapters, one of the programs that started several years ago is the thought of a a community paramedic program. Mm -hmm. These are paramedics that are specifically trained, um, not so much for emergency response, but they go out and they do home health checks. Mm -hmm. So they'll go out and deal with patients that have known chronic issues, such as digestive heart failure, diabetes... Uh, for a diabetic patient, we'll spend time talking with them, check their blood sugar, see that they're taking all their medication, and then going into bigger issues or uh, their activities of daily living. We'll look inside fridge uh, or their refrigerators just to make sure that they have food uh, more than once at diabetic calls. After treating the patient, we can give them dextrose to increase their blood sugar, but then that's that's very fast acting. Fast acting. Um, aspect of it also means it leaves the body very quickly. Mm -hmm. So we'll frequently make uh, PB&J as kind of a classic go-to, give them some complex carbs in in order to not have such a drastic sugar drop. So the thought of of these community paramedic programs has really done a lot to reduce the number of frequent flyers and to maintain better contact with patients that that suffer from issues like Alzheimer's. Uh, especially the behavioral health patients, the biggest impact that these community programs have is to cut down the unnecessary use of, of ambulances. In my department in the first year, when we started enacting these. Our call volume for these frequent flyers or um, customers, as we call them, actually dropped almost 50%. And we relate it back to having these patients have someone to talk to on a a routine basis, somebody coming in, checking on them. Uh, That's a a great use of of EMS, and that's part of the evolution. Again, I started as a first responder, as a police officer. Um, I was a flight paramedic for 14 years, a flight service here in Wisconsin. I continued to be a critical care paramedic. I've done hundreds of critical care transports. That has allowed me to take that background um, and that education. I worked in a cardiac catheterization laboratory. i worked in emergency departments. EMS providers can, can often add a degree or a depth of care to emergency departments that clinicians may not see pre-hospital. EMS providers know how to deal with patients and, and know how to get down to the root of the matter um, and function in a more combat-like situation many times more frequently than clinicians do. So we're seeing EMS workers going from being ambulance drivers to now being integrated as part of the healthcare team. I think there's going to be a definite need moving forward. I, again, I look forward to the the growth of community paramedic programs for the the reasons that I had mentioned earlier. And I think it offers a great opportunities for EMS providers for paramedics. Myself that have retired, that no longer want to get up in the middle of the night to answer a a pager or to go on another call, but to have a more um, scheduled lifestyle and continue my passion. People who work in EMS don't do it for the money. Quite honestly, the money is not very good. People that work in EMS do it because we're driven, because we feel that it's a calling. There's something in us that we need to provide and give back. So. When we look at EMS providers, virtually everyone that I've run into puts the patient, puts other people above and beyond themselves. We need to keep that going. The, the number of patients or the number of people coming into EMS is significantly decreasing. as many of the service industry type jobs, the problem is we don't have replacements for ourselves. I'm 61. I've been in this field, as I said, for over 40 years. I continue in it, but certainly within the next few years, I'm not going to be able to or have the drive to continue it. So we're needing to get younger people involved, maybe even getting uh, people out, outside the traditional uh, EMS room to have some interest in doing patient
0: care. I totally agree. the The other issue that I've always heard too is, With EMS, when they pass it off, let's say a person has to go to the emergency room and then the process starts all over again. And sometimes that information isn't, you know, isn't passed on or, you know, hospitals from a liability standpoint think they have to do their own assessments. And I know that that can be frustrating to patients and families as well. Like we just did this, you know, speed up the process. Do you see any way to get around that?
1: No, and I don't see that necessarily as a, as a huge detriment. I would much sooner over-treat the patient than to miss something. Mm-hmm. Specifically, one of the most common things that we'll do is check a patient's blood sugar. If uh, my patient is has altered mentation, seems to be acting either that they might be intoxicated, swearing their speech, or, or some other way impaired, I can check blood sugar at the scene. I can have an immediate value for that. And that'll be an indicator that possibly this behavior is being garnered by low blood sugar. Well, that's something that I, can, I can treat right at the scene and help eliminate that as a potential cause. Because of the assessments that are mandated uh, in the healthcare system, things like blood sugar checks will be taken into account by an emergency department. But They'll typically check a blood sugar on their own, especially if the patient has been treated by EMS with things like 50% dextrose or 10% dextrose, will temporarily elevate their blood sugar. But then again, we have to be watchful as that blood sugar comes down. So it may have been 20 or 25 minutes since the initial blood sugar. So they really do need to go back and and check that to make sure that a level is being maintained. We think about more dynamic situations, especially with cardiac issues. Someone having a heart attack uh, benefits from the more care they're going to get repeated EKGs. When we do an EKG in the field, it may be fairly subtle, indicating that well it looks like this person might be having uh, a heart attack in the space of 10 to 20 minutes i've seen significant evolution changes uh, in the EKG itself and went from having fairly subtle changes to now being very prominent. Um, very significant changes on an EKG. Again, we look for series. We look for trending of vital signs. So, although it might be seen uh, as a replication by a patient or
0: by families,
1: it's actually in the best patient care to make sure that that reassessment is being um, continued.
0: You know, in the in the summertime, do you get much in terms of dehydration with people? I'm just thinking of the heat, you know, wave that we're getting now here. Uh, in the Midwest, but it's been hitting the whole country.
1: It's significant. Uh, in my own experience, I was in New Orleans uh, last weekend. The heat indices down there were ranging anywhere from 100 to 180 degrees. We're all aware of it. That you know, it's certainly hot. It's certainly humid, and the need to to hydrate. Now, I, I take that to a patient that may have dementia, may have Alzheimer's may lack that self-awareness, and that's going to put them at additional risk. Medications, certain medical conditions can deplete the, the body's regulatory factors uh, to the extent that someone might be in a, a dangerously hot environment but be completely unaware of it or assume that it's normal. So having a keen awareness of your family members, neighbors, people that, that might have cognitive impairments such as dementia or Alzheimer's is especially critical and can be life-saving this time of year. So we're, we're currently under uh, a heat indication or a, a condition that they refer to as a heat bowl and it, unfortunately it's the majority of the country right now in the Midwest we're also being uh, coupled with smoke coming from Canadian wildfires. So we look at Patients that have underlying pulmonary disease like emphysema or asthma being at particular risk if they go outside, uh, not only from the heat, but from the presence of the smoke. And from an EPA perspective, the air quality, at least in the metro area, has been ranging uh, from unhealthy to poor over the last few days. So we have to take into account all of the environmental factors uh, above and beyond what might be uh, just the patient's normal daily liver.
0: Wonderful. Well, Pete, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. You have given us so many tips and ideas and insights in terms of what EMS deals with uh, when, they're, when they're caring for our loved one or patient uh, living with dementia. Like I said, I can't thank you enough. So I appreciate your time with us today. Uh, to our listeners, I really ask you to share this episode. This is a really important topic. There are many things we can do to Help this process go smooth when we are in need of help, and it doesn't cost you any money. It doesn't take any time to like, click, and share. And for me, it's not about the numbers; it's about making sure this information gets out to people in need. There are so many people in our own spheres that are dealing with this that we don't even know about because there's such stigma to even talk about it. And we've got to make we've got we've got to break that barrier. We've got to make it easier for people to feel comfortable, to reach out and, and find the support they need. So please be a giver of hope and, and just like, click, and share. Again, you can reach out to Pete on Facebook or LinkedIn. And also look at the show notes because there's a couple of clips that feature uh, Pete's work. You're just doing uh, amazing work. And I appreciate you sticking with things after you're retired and trying to improve this situation.
1: Thank you. Been an honor to get to talk to you and present a perspective from EMS that frequently we don't have the ability to share with the public.
0: Yeah, on our conscious caregiving with L and L that I do once a month with uh, Lance Layton, we we just did one on driving seniors in driving, and I wish I would have had you on as a panelist for that because that would be really helpful. But I think I'm going to add you on to the page there in this show. Uh, So there's some additional resources that people can consider because I think you gave us some, some wonderful tips here. So thanks again. Thank you for
1: the opportunity. I appreciate it.
0: Okay. Bye everyone. We'll see you next time.
1: It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed.